Marini's Media. This Christmas slash Hanukkah slash Winterval slash holiday season, The Athletic wants you to bog off. Because when you buy one annual subscription, you'll get another one for free. And similarly, when you gift a year's subscription, you can get one for yourself and no extra cost. So wave goodbye to 2020 and say hello to 2021 by sharing the gift of The Athletic's unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash galazzo. Today, Itre Tulipani, Rude Hullit, Frank Reichard, and Marco van Basten, Milan's three legendary Dutchmen who made Milan great, made Capello cry, made Vuller wash his hair, and scored the greatest goal of all time. Brackets, question mark, close brackets. Their story coming up in this special two part. It's the 80s, clearly. And I'm James Richardson here with another Golazzo. This is James Horncastle. Hello. And lo, it is the Dottore, ESPN senior football writer, Gab Marcotti. Hello. And today we are heading back to that golden decade to talk about the three tulips. Hulid Reichard van Basten, the greatest threesome Berlusconi ever paid for. And that's saying something. <laughs> Who, who were these three then? Frank Reichardt, first of all. Frank Reichardt was a hard-charging uh, central midfielder who always kind of played with sort of this mini scowl on his uh, on his face, but uh, supposedly had a bit of a heart of gold in the in the dressing room. He was strong, he was quick, and he was leader. Absolutely. What about Ruud Hullet? Well, Ruud Hullet, often associated, at least in the UK with uh, the kind of football he wanted to see, James, which was Mm. sexy football. So when you mentioned that Berlusconi threesome, no wonder sexy football really appealed to him. Uh, But uh, Ruud Hullet, I mean, he could play everywhere, uh, literally everywhere. I mean, he uh, came through in in Holland playing as a libero. When he joined Milan, he started playing out on the right wing, and then he started playing as a a striker. And uh, and boy, did he score a lot of goals uh, as, as well. Uh, both in the Eredivisie and Serie A. But uh, one of the most iconic players of that era, um, so much so that uh, if you were going to San Siro at that time, which I'm sure you and Gab were, um, I hope you bought one of the uh, the wigs that they were selling outside of the Miazza for the uh, the dreadlocked uh, Rude Hullet. It's enough about wigs. And what about <laughs> then Marco Van Basten? Well, Marco Van Basten is the original golden child, the nicknamed the Swan. He was, I think, one of the most elegant center forwards um, that that the game has ever produced. And, you know, we I got the Swan thing because he managed to be graceful and powerful at the same time. Um, I'm told that's what, uh, you know, ballet dancers like Roberto Bolle uh, mm-hmm. are like. Um, and there was certainly something balletic about the way he played, but he was also strong as an ox and a very, very good golfer. Mm. Like Nureyev in football boots. I've seen him describe the swan of Utrecht. He actually has a painting 
of Nureyev in his uh, in his flat. But Nureyev painted in red and black because uh, Berlusconi used to call him Milan's Nureyev. So there you go. And a fun fact, which um, I had completely forgotten about, uh, but which I relearned today thanks to the magic of the internet. We know these people as, as Frank, Rude, and, uh, and Marco, but mm. Frank's real name is actually Franklin. Marco's real name uh, was Marcel. And Rude Hollett was born as Rude Brian. Dill. Rude Dill. Yeah, yeah he's the yeah. real Dill. Yeah. I know. But, do you know, it's interesting, though, because Marco is one of the great examples of nominative determinism, given that, what does Marco mean in Italian? Score. I score. I score. Yeah. And he oh, did. I was going to say the German currency, but yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, these three... However you define them, made Milan the greatest side the game has ever seen. That's not my opinion, that's UEFA's. As a measure of how far they towered over their rivals, the three of them placed first, second and third in the 1988 Ballon d'Or voting. Marco van Basten winning with Rijkaard second and Hullet third. The following year, it was, another all Mili- <laughs> it was another all-Milan podium. Van Basten winning again, Rijkaard second, this time Baresi coming in in third place. Milan, though, the only club ever to hold all three spots in the Ballon d'Or voting, top three spots, for two consecutive seasons. When you had in that, okay, Mateus won it in 1990, but the next guy to win it, Papan, they bought him too, and the guy who'd preceded that run was Hullet. They had an extraordinary run of five Ballon d'Ors in six seasons. Incredible. With Van Basten winning again in 92. Anyway, we'll get on to all of that. Let's spin some retro sounds and journey back. Cineas presidents have long been partial to buying their foreign stars in bulk, as you might do with puppies or or toilet paper in a pandemic. So, kind of, if you go back to the 50s at Milan, you had Grenoli. Gunnar Gren, Gunnar Nordahl and Nils Liedholm. Juve had their three Danes, who were rather less famous, but still. Uh, and then in the 80s, you, it, when the frontiers were opened again, two foreign players in limited quotas at first, clubs again aimed for three of a kind, no? Yeah, it's, but to, to be fair, there was a reason for this. Yeah. One is the world was in this wonderful, magical, integrated uh, place. There was no... Mino Raiola, Jonathan Barnett, and Jorge Mendez to keep peddling wares and moving people around. So it was a big deal when you brought in a foreigner. You had to get it right. Um, and so what happened is a lot of the time, uh, also because the leagues were so different and City I was so different, the idea was, oh, well, let's get two from the same country so that, that he'll have a friend, you know, a guy who, um, a, a guy with a similar background and help that he can help each other integrate. So there, there was a logic to it. But it went way beyond that, you know, right down to, to Lecce signing, you know, Peto Barbas and, 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 and Pedro Pablo Pasculi. And I'm really dating myself there. So, yeah, so oftentimes it was pretty customary to get, you know, two um, and, and, and when, when, it, when it was allowed, uh, three foreigners from the same country. If you were cynical, you'd also cut in the fact that, you know, a lot of times or some of the time at least, you know, there were deals to be done with certain agents. But Gap, I mean, this this could have been the three Englishmen of Milan. If only they'd added someone to Ray mm. Wilkins and Mark Haightley, because ultimately the three Dutchmen replaced those two guys. And uh, James, you were mentioning the fact that uh, Italy opened its borders again uh, and uh, allowed foreign players to, to come in after what they had been 
uh, banned from coming after what the 1966 World Cup debacle. Um, and Milan hadn't got it right up until that point. I think we have to set this into context in that Milan in the 80s had been relegated twice, you know, once part of the kind of Totonero scandal. Um, you know, they almost went bust, which is why Silvio Berlusconi ends up buying the club because uh, um, Juicy Farina basically runs out of money um, trying to pay uh, the likes of Mark Haightley and, uh, and Ray Wilkins. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, yeah, they, they get it spot on with... Uh, uh, well, first, uh, Ruud Hullet and Marco van Basten. Right. Well, there have been some ex- some very exotic uh, combinations tried out by Serie clubs. Juve had brought in a couple of Russians, Zavarov and Alenikov. Inter ran this time, had the three Germans, which worked out rather better, Klinsmann, Mateus and Andy Bremer. Roma, do you remember? They had the two Brazilians, uh, Portolupi, who was described as decisive only in the discotheque, and Andrade, who was nicknamed Urmuviola. The slow mo. <laughs> Genoa. Do you remember Genoa were a proper club at this point? They had uh, the three Uruguayans, Pato Aguilera, Ruben Paz, and Perdomo. Pato Aguilera, of course, uh, he'd go down in history for for something. He was a very good goal scorer. Mm. Um, a cup hero, but um, of course, he got involved in something else later in his career. He did indeed. Are you going to say what it is? <laughs> um, I guess he, he liked the ladies and. He liked helping Business. people who had some money right. spend time with ladies for entertainment purposes only. Yep, indeed. So anyway, Milan, who, as James mentions, had been bought by Berlusconi in 86, were looking to make a bit of a statement, and they said it with Tulipani. So at the time that the first two came in, you could only have two foreign players uh, in your sides, and it was Hullet and Van Basten who came in. Hullet from PSV, Van Basten from Ajax. At the time, Hullet was the much bigger name. No question about it. Um, Hullet had already he'd already had his big money move to uh, PSV Eindhoven because he he was at Feyenoord before that, and you know whereas Marco Van Basten was I guess he was he was a couple years younger at the time, yeah. and there were still some still is question I think, marks. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think he has managed to remain younger than Mood Hullet. Yeah, this is true. Hullet comes in for a world record six million. That and a, and a rendition of La Vie en Rose by Berlusconi on the piano are swinging the deal with PSV, who were reluctant to sell Van Basten arriving from Ajax for around a million pounds or the equivalent thereof, which is quite a thought. We should say how transformational kind of Berlusconi's uh, entry into European football was. I mean, that kind of money... Um, I'm pretty sure it went towards paying for an entire new stand at, uh, at PSV's um, at PSV's Philips Stadion, um, and you know, as is always the case with you know, these Italian titans of industry, um, same with Gianni Agnelli uh, who comes in. Yeah, you know, there is always promises of sort of business arrangements outside of football. You know, sort of like uh, you know, we will help Philips grow in in Italy or something, or we will uh, we will. Build so many Fiat factories in uh, <laughs> in, in <Russia>. Buenos Aires. <laughs> so, so uh, I think Ruud Hullet was was uh, upon getting wind of, of the fact that um, uh, Milan were interested in him, uh, was called to a meeting at uh, Philips's offices, and lo and behold, in the in the chairman's kind of in the boardroom, there was Silvio Berlusconi already sitting there, uh, not at, at that time um, singing La Vie en Rose, but. Um, yeah, the money that uh, PSV got for Hullet uh, went towards 
uh, building the team that won the European Cup the following year on the, mm. uh, on the Golden Goose Hiddink. All right. We didn't go for a song then. Six million, as I say, a world record at the time. And it was him who did the heavy lifting that coming season, 87-88, as Milan took their first Scudetto in eight years. Van Basten, who was hampered by ankle injuries. Hulid, seen increasingly as the northern answer to Maradona. There's a there's a game just after the turn of the year, actually, 3rd of January, 88, at San Siro, as they take on Napoli. A 4-1 win for Milan. Hulit scores. A week later, they beat Juventus 1-0. Hulit scores. Get to April. They beat Inter in the derby. Hulit scores. And then just a week later comes possibly the most famous game of this entire campaign when Milan visit Napoli, who at the time were still the league leaders, down at the San Paolo. This is the statement win uh, for Rigo Sacchi's Milan um, when I think everyone is convinced that they are going to not only go on and win the title, but... Um, transform I think uh, the landscape in, in, in not just in Italy but uh, European football as well um, because it was it was Maradona's Napoli and I think I think it was before that game um, where again Maradona says yeah I don't want to see a red and black flag um, in the Stadio San Paolo that day and yeah if you look at the capacity of the San Paolo what is it 60 70,000 there are probably a hundred thousand and that's what it felt like I think that that game was was broadcast on on state TV as well. It, it, it wasn't something that you waited around for uh, Domenica Sportiva for. Um, it was it was that big of a deal. And they went there and won. And uh, and Van Basten, as you mentioned, James, who missed much of this campaign, came on and was, was pretty decisive in it as well. So, Yeah, Van Basten scored the goal to make it 3-1. And there was a whole sort of pre to this, which was... I remember, I remember this very, very distinctly. It's one of my memories of being and being a child and going through the whole like sort of, uh, you know, the, the, those Italian summers where you you pick up the, uh, you pick up the sports papers every morning and there's rumors and and they're all playing in their uh, preseason tours against, you know, amateur teams and lumberjacks and all this nonsense and and I remember, I, I don't know, I, again, my memory gets hazy in my old age, but. I remember Maradona, it was one of those summers where Maradona did not stay in Argentina fishing Dorados, but actually came back and showed up and he gave his first, uh, uh, his first interview and, uh, you know, Hullet had already played in preseason and I remember this, uh, um, this headline uh, in Corriere della Sera, which is, uh, which was uh, Io Maradona attacco i venditori di fumo, which is, you know, I Maradona I'm striking back against sort of the uh, the con artists out there. And one of the things he said, it was something like, um, is Hullet greater than me? And he's like, for the time being, the only way he's greater for me is if you count centimeters. It was it was something like that. And and I remember that, you know, that the, the, there was a whole sort of uh, sort of backlash. And that season, it looked like Napoli were going to win. It looked like Napoli were going to win the title because also it was being started slowly and and that game was kind of, you know, as, as the season wore on, you thought, all right, you know, and, and Milan got closer, you felt Napoli were going were gonna to go and put this to bed in the head-to-head. And, mm. and of course, they didn't. Gab, when, what did the Italian press make of Hullet when he first arrived in summer 87? Well, basically, when he arrived, uh, a lot of people, 
um, found him immensely likable. Because remember, Holit's gone through different incarnations. I, I think we've all met him. Um, how can I put this? Uh, you know, he can be a certain, he's got a certain personality, right? And sometimes he can be a bit moody sometimes. And sometimes he can maybe be, you know, a little bit less than sincere. But, but that summer, um, and really that whole first season, Holit seemed to be smiling the whole time. He quickly became immensely popular. He said all the right things post game, and people all all forgot that. Oh yeah, the other Dutch guy is uh, is injured, and and really he was he was a focus of of everything. And you know whatever things internally he might have had to deal with going from Dutch football, which we naturally expect to be more laid back, to Arrigo Saki, who of course you know can be a real pain in the butt. Um, he evidently took them on board with with a smile, at least at that stage. Things would, it would obviously change later, but it felt like, you know, you're almost living some sort of fairy tale with, and, and people felt good about himself because, you know, here was a guy who's talking about Mandela and apartheid and, and, and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. he's smiling and he's cool and he's got the dreadlocks and, you know. That virile moustache as well. Yeah, well, yeah, the virile but, but I mean, look, liking him made you feel good about yourself. Yep. I think, absolutely. you know, that was... That was a vibe, I think, at the time. He dedicated his uh, Ballon d'Or in '87 to uh, Nelson Mandela, which, uh, and uh, I think, within weeks of uh, of moving to Milan, he he performed with his his reggae band, what they called James. He, I think he performed in front of three thousand people. Revelation time, of course, James. Mm. And it was Revelation time in Serie A. <laughs> it was. Exactly. He later released a single, this actually, called South Africa. Uh, now, Origo Sack, as you mentioned, Gab, he wasn't necessarily the easiest of managers. Incredibly effective, uh, revelatory, as you say, uh, James, in terms of uh, the his impact on Italian football. But he found it impossible to contain Hullet. And Hullet later was talking about this saying that basically that the pair couldn't understand each other. So Saki would have to indicate what he wanted Hullet to do with gestures. And, uh, you know, you have to go up and down and he would wave his arms. And then until one time he wanted to show Hullet how to fake out a player. And he did a rapid movement and he put his, his, his neck out and he had to spend a, a, a month in a brace, according to Ruud Hullet. After which... I think Hullet was pretty much given free reign. Uh, he also says that um, Saki used to shout at them so much he lost his voice, so then he got a megaphone and spent all the training sessions wandering around shouting at them with a megaphone. Yeah, and they all tell the story that uh, because there, there's a dorm famously at Milanello where they sleep before the the, the games, um, that if anyone was in the, in the room adjoining or, or next to Saki's, they would hear him kind of waking up in the night shouting, offside, offside. <laughs> That is a remarkable story. It does seem to be, though, that Saki, who was a man who was pretty much wedded to his his tactics, Hullet was one of the rare players who actually made him change his plans. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of whatever sort of four four two he had sort of dreamt up uh, originally when Hullet signed. Um, you know, I think he in in, in his mind, you know, it was going to be Van Basten and Virdis up front. And you know Hullet and uh, Donadoni 
um, on the wings, which you know by the standards of Italian football would have been would have been very um, very adventurous. Um, probably a combination of Ambaston being injured um, and the fact that you know it was still this idea of you know Italians tactically obsessed and Saki especially so. You know, do I want Hullet running up and on the wing and giving him these defensive pressing responsibilities or am I better off, you know, allowing him to, to drift more inside? And that's why things evolved um, to the point when he st- we started seeing Colombo or Kiko Ivani um, in, in, that, in that midfield uh, as well to, and, and Hullet given more license to play up front. Certainly Van Basten and Hullet coming from Holland were used to challenging their coaches mm. um, on on the tactics and, and engaging in discussion on on strategy, which I, I'm not sure was something that Saki himself was used to. Remember Saki was someone who had no footballing background and this was his first big job after basically impressing Berlusconi whilst coaching Parma against, um, was it Niels Liedholm's uh, Milan in the, in the Coppa Italia. And because of that, um, Van Basten certainly doesn't see uh, Saki as some some kind of guru who changed football. I mean, to be fair, Van Basten was was joining Milan after spending time and, and growing up idolizing Johan Cruyff, who who uh, he was a teammate of and who coached him um, at Ajax as well. So he he felt like this this. That, that Saki was having to justify himself all the time, doing doing lots of uh, interviews, lots of press, saying, look at my innovative ideas, I'm so different, um, to basically, as I said, justify his his role in the game, having, having very little pedigree. So, yeah, Van Basten recently said, look, Saki, you invented nothing. Um, you know, this idea that... Um, uh, you, you started pressing and all you wanted to do was you, you wanted your strikers to defend and uh, and that's that's not that's not something revolutionary and you just benefited from the fact that you had the best defense of all time um, at the back for you with Baresi, Tassotti, uh, Maldini and Costa Curta and three great Dutchmen um, mm-hmm. who would uh, who would win without him um, as well. It's uh, not only when Capello got the job, but obviously when they went to play in uh, Euro 88. Euro 88, well, it's true. That season, Van Basten only managed 11 matches for the Rossoneri, but he had been decisive in the title races we heard in that game away in Naples. That summer, he was able to play a bit with the Orangi. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Come end of season and for their summer holidays, Hullet and Van Basten head off to join the national side for that summer's European Championship in West Germany, where some stuff happened. Van Goed, goal! Wat een schitterend doel 
Netherlands lost their opener against the USSR, as they were back in those days. After that, non cenera per nessuno. What struck you about, what struck me, what I remember as Dutch side is obviously a bit different because Frank Rijkaard played in central defense alongside Ronald Koeman. It struck me as one of those teams where you had some outstanding players, obviously, uh, but you didn't necessarily have depth and you had some pretty average players, but it all came together because they all filled roles. They had Arnold Murren playing for them, who I think must have been like 37. And, and, and by the way, young ones like 37 today, you could maybe envision a midfielder playing, possibly, um, in Serie A, most likely. Um, but back then, 37, like, you know, like they, they take dogs out back and, and then shoot them, right? I mean, um, Ronald Koeman's brother, Erwin Koeman, played, and he only played because he was left-footed. Ronald, he was terrible. Ronald Koeman's brother, I thought you were going to say. No, I'm serious. It's like, oh, look, you know, let's get both Koemans, you know. Um, and, you know, Ronald Koeman, obviously phenomenal. They they had very good fullbacks in, in Barry Van Erle. Uh, Audrey Van Tegel on the left, perhaps a little bit less so, a good goalkeeper. But what struck you, and obviously they had Hullet and Van Basten up front with, with Van Kieft. They had this guy named Fannenberg, who all he did was dribble and get fouled. Um, so it, it was where, it was almost like a team where you had like six or seven people who had very specific roles. And then you had the other guys who who carried the team and took them to the next level. Right. Um, and... You know, that team, of course, will always stand out. And you, know, you mentioned the loss of the Soviet Union. Of course, they faced them again in the final after mm-hmm. the uh, Soviet Union had pretty much road-graded Italy in one of the most one-sided 2-0 uh, defeats that I can remember Italy suffering. And then, of course, they scored the final. They scored that, that tremendous uh, goal where it was a header from um, from one to the other and then into the back of the net. Mm. Well, on the way to that final... Van Basten put three past England in a 3-1 victory. Then he scored in the match which Hullet described as the most important of all, the semi-final against West Germany. And then we get to the clash, the second clash with the Soviet Union. Hullet, as Gab mentions, opens the scoring with a trademark header. And then Van Basten comes up with that goal, which I'm going to call the greatest goal ever scored by anybody ever. Disagree with me if you will. It's not even the best Van Basten goal. Would no. you say? I'm going to. Okay, here's my argument. In terms of the occasion, the audacity of the gesture, the execution of the gesture, and above all, the grace with which he does it, he, even from that position, he still strokes it in. It's an absolutely remarkable goal for the occasion, for the, for the chutzpah. I don't want to take anything away from, from that goal. It is right. one of the top five goals ever. Okay. But, I mean, we're taping this, what, like less than a month since the passing of the man who scored that goal at the Azteca Stadium in 1986. Right. And if you're talking about technical difficulty, you know, I mean... Gap, uh, James has much the same view of Diego Maradona as Peter Shilton. So yeah, perhaps... Clearly. He, he, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, so, no, I take your point. I take your point. That is a great goal. All right, well, we'll call it one of the top two. I mean, Dennis Bergkamp scored a goal like Dennis Paolo Di Canio. You know, like it's... Was it in a... Uh, sorry, was it a European no, no, Championship no. final? No, it wasn't. No, I mean, Bergkamp watched European Championship finals on TV, as we know. But uh, Paolo Di Canio obviously never even played for his country. So, no, no, no. I, I'll give you the... I, mean, I, I give him occasion points, and, I, and right. I'm ha- I'll happily have him in my top five. But having him at number one, come on, man. Well, he talks about uh, the fact that it's against 
uh, the best goalkeeper in the world at that time, apparently, Rinat Dasaev. Um, and he says his right foot, he'd already had numerous ankle surgeries um, and the mobility in his right foot at that time was by no means uh, peak Van Basten. Um, and it surprised him um, that uh, he connected with it so well. Was it a was cross? To... Oh. <laughs> Have some respect. Now, okay, Gab, here's, here's my kind of, I take your point about Maradona, absolutely. But here's the thing. If you're Maradona, and you have the ball at your feet and you start to run towards goal. The rest kind of everything follows as, as a consequence. But as I say, it's the audacity of what Marco van Basten decides to do in that instant when the ball sails to him from the impossible position that he's standing in to think, yeah, I would do this. And then to just casually pull it off. What, what, else, what else can he do in that apart from, say, cross? Bring it down. Okay, bring it down. But, but in, 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 to say that... Maradona, when he spins like a little eel, has he just basically runs downhill and that's it. He I has didn't say so he ran downhill. Do. I'm saying it's incredible he so- what he does. But in terms of his decision making, it, it totally makes sense what he does. What Marco van Basten did didn't make any sense, but he made it made sense. He 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 took football out of the the laws of physics for a second. And that's why that goal is so iconic for me. I agree. Maradona's is up there as well. They're very different goals. It's crazy to put them as one and two. But but it, they're both in the top three. I'll allow you one other James, one. James, you put it so poetically that, you know, we'll, we'll go with, with one and one A. How's that? I mean, they both have historical meaning. I mean, in, in the sense that... Um, uh, I mean, this goal didn't bring down the uh, the Iron Curtain but, uh, or the Berlin Wall, but uh, for, for the Dutch, you know, first time they win a major trophy. And where do they win it? They win it in Munich, where they'd lost mm. uh, the World Cup final in 74 uh, after taking the lead. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe doesn't have the same, exactly the same cultural resonance as Maradona's uh, two against... Uh, the uh, the oppressive English and the, you know, the and the Malvinas hold backdrop to that, but still, still. But 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 I mean, James does make a good, a really good point though um, about the historical context. Obviously, the Berlin Wall falling and you know the shock of Germany, West Germany's defeat, effectively causing reunification. The Berlin Wall falling about six months later, and then and I have to say like. Rocky Balboa's victory over <laughs> Ivan Draga had a big part to do with it. That was a couple of years later. Don't you know, forget the Scorpions. They were involved in this too. The, and Hasselhoff. The winds of change. Yeah. Uh, all of that contributed to the end of communism as, as we know it, right? Right. Going back to that European champion Orangi side and also starring in the team was a childhood friend of Rude Hullet's Frank Rijkaard. Rodrigo Saki had plans for him. Right, Gab? Um... What had happened is he'd been at Ajax. Uh, Ajax had sold him to Sporting Lisbon. For some reason, something happened, and I think the issue was that Sporting Lisbon, again, th- th- there's different theories about what exactly happened and whether Milan were behind this from the start, were agents. But Sporting Lisbon, they weren't able to register him for European competition. So they ended up saying, all right, well, then we have no use for him. And they... They loaned him into Spain to where he played for, for Saragossa, but he only played part of the season. And he was on loan from Sporting Lisbon, but everybody knew he was going to be a Milan player. And the fans were very unhappy about this when they found out that uh, Sporting were negotiating basically the sale of, of right guard with Milan. 
and they gathered outside the hotel, I think, where this was going on. And uh, Adriano Galliani and Ariadna Bryder basically uh, had to get out with the paperwork tucked down into Galliani's pants. And oh, the, the fans in, in Lisbon? Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right. Rijkaard had been playing in the centre of the Dutch defence, but Milan had one or two defenders already, so Arrigo Sacchi decides to move him into midfield. And bingo, Milan had just assembled perhaps the greatest team the world has ever seen. Podcast, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad free on The Athletic. This is Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. All right, so Frank Reinkamp making the move for, again, for very little money. I think it was about a million or so uh, pounds, the equivalent of. What did he bring, Gab, to the Milan side? Well, obviously, people who'd watched them at the Euros and hadn't seen him play before were like, oh, look, we're getting another central defender. But of course, you know, he'd played midfield before that, you know, and only basically deputized in central defense for uh, for the Dutch because, as often happens with smaller nations, they had a lot of talent in certain positions, less in others. Uh, and he came in and he he immediately, I think, got what Saki wanted, um, wanted from him in that role. Um, and he joined in midfield where this was uh, Carletto Ancelotti's last sort of healthy season, effectively his last hurrah uh, as a player. And, you know, between the two of them, their combination of size and strength uh, was tremendous, you know, and, and it really gave it really gave them a platform. You know, again, I don't want to go down the Van Basten thing and say, oh, look, they had this tremendous defense and he didn't invent anything and going forward because that's not true. But it gave them such a physical presence where they could simply boss games, whether with the ball or without the ball. Well, with his arrival, Milan had assembled perhaps the greatest team the world has ever seen. Certainly UEFA thinks so. And what was to follow over the next five seasons would redefine football in Italy and beyond. We'll continue the story of the Tre Tulipani in the next part of Golazzo, in which, James, what will we be talking about? Well, we can't not talk about these three really coming to the fore in one of the most devastating, biggest wins in European football of the 80s, that 5-0-1 against Real Madrid. Woof, absolutely. And Gab? And we'll also be talking about how these three men defined the Dutch Milan, despite actually not spending as much time together on the pitch as you may think. Hmm, all right then. Well, that and much more is to come in the next part of Golazzo, which should be with you soon. For now, from myself, Gab, and James, it's Arrivederci. Campionato di calcio italiano You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. Marini's Media.